Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Folding pocket. Welcome to another episode of The Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you're prepared to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. So hello again, rabbit holies. Hello, Kat. hello, cat. How are we all today? Back in real life, in three dimensions again? Well, and you framed by enormous greenery. <gasps> yes. We've got the big ferns in again. That's good. I yeah. am. I quite like that I've been given them either side of my chair. No, it looks great. It's almost like you're a peacock-like cat. You sound <laughs> a little croaky, Charles. Yeah, I'm a little under the weather. I'm full of paracetamols and all sorts but uh, no raring to go competitive as ever and ready to give battle but first cold of the end of the year yes yeah well it's kids uh, back to school right well that's it my 17 year old daughter and i had supper the other day she said don't come i'm feeling really ill and i thought oh, as a typical teenager doesn't want to see me <laughs> so force force the issue and this is my payback <laughs> well that's dedication surely <laughs> Do the course. I know it's just that time of year, isn't it? You sort of go. Oh. I love this time of year. I do too. I do. I like wearing jumpers. I like and going things. back to school. Oh, holiday over at last! <laughs> get back yes. to school. I like the new pencil case. I like the yes. conquer competition. I liked everything. Yeah. But wasn't it all haircuts and dentists and things before going back? That was always the worst part. You never had that, actually. No. Be a great title for your autobiography. <laughs> all haircuts and, and dentists. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, self-care. It's a good one. <laughs> do like the weather, actually, the cold. It's nice. Don't mind it. I like a more varied diet of temperature. But you're back with us. You're not flying about the country anymore. You catch me between Chelmsford and Bury St Edmunds. <laughs> Bury St Edmunds. Can you, the greats got a good link to Bury St Edmunds. That's what I'm going to. The only reason I'm obviously going to go there is to deliver my hilarious yet moving one-man show to the good peoples of Bury St Edmunds. But really, I'm just obsessed with Knut now. Knut. Thanks to you. Yes. Knut. Knut. Oh, yes. no. Not Knut. Yeah. <laughs> and where's been your most raucous reception so far? Surely. Yeah. And do you know why? Because mm. I had a special guest star, Victor the Magpie, who's the mascot for Chorley Football Club. Oh. So he came on, me having slagged off the sinister magpie they have as their mascot. And he came <laughs> on in the second. There he was. Uproar. Uproar <laughs> at the Empire, Chorley. Perfect. I think we're going to let you start today, Richard. And... This week, you've been researching the islands of St Kilda. Voyage with me, <laughs> if you will, mm. back to about 50 million years ago. And the North Atlantic, which was being formed at the time, enormous volcanic activity spewed forth great rocks and stacks, the Hebridean archipelago being one of them. And yet the most distant 
island of the Hebridean archipelago is St Kilda. I've been obsessed with it for years, actually, because there is something about this very, very, very remote island with a population that's been there forever that have evolved their own particular kind of customs and habits. It's Gaels. They're Gaelic-speaking, or they were Gaelic-speaking. There's no population there now, for reasons I'll explain. But they've lived this extraordinary, different, distinctive life on basically a rock in the North Atlantic. You approach it by sea, there's another way of doing it, you could do it by air, but there's no way to land. And it's extraordinarily moving. You see this archipelago and these huge stacks, a million seabirds nesting there, circling it. You see it from distance, and it's like a sort of cloud around it. And then this incredible green surging island appears. Well, there's actually four islands, but the main one. And it looks literally like something from Epic. It's like something from Game of Thrones. There's something about it that is so stunning. Middle of nowhere. And if you're lucky, you can land. If you're in a small enough ship and the weather is kind, it's not always kind, I can tell you. You can land there and you land in Village Bay. And that was where the population of St. Kilda resided. Now, we know there were people there 5,000 years ago. It was a Stone Age. There were signs of settlement there. Why on earth would anyone go to St. Kilda? Well, it's visible from Bembecula. So I guess if you were there, you might set off in your... Long ship, yes, Dr. Jarman, <laughs> to see what you could hunt on this remote place. And after a while, people stayed and settled. Why you would stay and settle there, I don't know, because it is a very inhospitable place. You approach the main island, which is called Hurta, and there is Village Bay. And it's this kind of natural green amphitheatre. And you land there. And there's now, if you go, there's what's left of the one street of the main settlement there, which was lived in by the islanders of St. Kilda. Now, Records of them go back to about the 18th century, although settlement has been there for a very long time. So there's a population, at one point there was a population of about 200 there. The population has always varied between 30, as low as that, up to about 200, which is the most it can sustain. What do they do all day? Well, they're cragsmen. The men are mostly cragsmen, and they live on seabirds and what seabirds produce, i.e. young and eggs, which they harvest from... 400 metres or therefore of these extraordinary vertical cliffs poking about the sea, which is why gannets and fulmar and puffins love it so much. And so they lived on that. And to get to them, they had to scramble the cragsmen, men and boys, across these cliffs to gather the seabirds, from which they extracted every ounce of usable material. What did they eat? Every day, they ate 17 fowl and 36 eggs. What, each? Each. That's an extraordinary crazy. consumption. 36 eggs and 17 fowl when they were in season, of mm. course. So that was in the summer months, of course. In the winter months, they ate salted mutton because they have, I don't know how to pronounce it, soe, soe, sheep. Soe. How do you say it? Soe. Soe sheep, mm. which almost look like goats. Very tough little things, yes. Tough little things were the only things that can survive yeah. in St Kilda, I think. Yes. So they ate salted mutton from them. But otherwise, they live on this extraordinary diet, basically, of eggs and seabirds. But are they eating sort of grasses of seaweed and things like that and as well? No fruit, no vegetables, few oats, few potatoes. They mm. grew a few potatoes. But essentially, I mean, it sounds like just about the worst diet in the world. <laughs> But they were extraordinary people, so well adapted to their environment. I mean, it's a famous peculiarity of the St Kildans was that St Kildans had different feet. You look at a hobbit and you think, what's the point of that? Yes. Right? Well, I look at a hobbit and I think, what's the point of that? The whole thing is not my cup of tea. But when you look at a hobbit's feet, you think, what's the point of that? St Kildans had feet that were extraordinarily well adapted to 
crag scrambling. So they had kind of long hooked toes that were almost like claws. Now, some people have thought that that might have happened over a long enough period of time for that to be evolutionary. I don't think so. I think it's adaptation. From the age of two or three, the boys were scrambling around on the rocks. They found out it was better to be lowered from the top than to kind of climb up from the Uh, bottom. We're talking big, big cliffs here. So ropes were made out of horse hair originally, and these were tested by the men who would tie it to a boulder. And then there was a formal testing of the rope because you don't want to hang off a 400 meter high (laughs) cliff and not feel that your rope is secure. Later, they discovered hemp that was brought in and their ropes became a bit stouter. The women tended to stay home and went through the most murderously difficult, depressing and gloomy experience of childbirth you can imagine because the child mortality rate on St Kilda was about 80%. What? So eight out of 10 of every babe that was born probably lasted less than a month. Because it's just such a brutal climate and... Typhus. Ah, yes. So people lived in extremely unhygienic conditions. Life was nasty, brutish and short, basically. But it was typhus. But none of this was really picked up until the 19th century when people started... Well, people started getting interested in St Kilda in the 18th century Mm -hmm. when they started getting interested in the idea of there being isolated communities of noble savages, this romantic notion, this post-enlightenment notion that there were somehow people who lived in a state of prelapsarian bliss, who you could visit and discover what life was like before the corruptions of society and enterprise and everything entered into the equation. Of course, complete nonsense. It's a fanciful idea. But they started going to St Kilda, rather like people started going to the South Seas to find these kind of prelapsarian societies. The St Kildans were absolutely baffled by this, by tourists turning up. And there was a story that used to be thought that that was one of the reasons why they were decimated, and it's not the wrong, it's exactly the right use of the word, by smallpox. There was an outbreak of leprosy in the 17th century, but terrible two outbreaks of smallpox, which reduced the population from about 200 to about 50 I think at one point. And it was thought that rather like the indigenous peoples when the conquistadors went to uh, South America were killed more by smallpox than by sword. But actually there was always contact with people from outside because there was always contact with a factor who would come each year from McLeod and McLeod to gather rents or whatever the Kildans had managed to scratch as a living. So there was always contact. It was just simply probably the way they lived. So Mm. Ministers were a minister was sent in the 19th century when a sort of reforming landlord took over. Thatched black houses were knocked down and they built proper stone houses with proper roofs to kind of improve conditions for people. One of the ministers by the name of Mackenzie decided to greatly improve matters for the St Kildans by encouraging them to put legs on tables rather than eating off the floor, which is what they used to do. And also to build byres to separate the animals from the human populations because that's how they had lived. Indeed, lots of people whose lifestyles we might describe as primitive lived. And he also brought religion. So they brought reformed Scottish Protestantism of the strictest kind, we free, one of the strictest kinds. I mean, they were always losing people to emigration because imagine what it was like living on St Kilda. Imagine how tough a winter would be. There's records of young men in the 1850s going to Australia to settle that. They didn't do very well because they were so ill-adapted to any other life other than life on St Kilda. But also that life of going up and down. I mean, when you were talking about their feet, etc., I was remembering... With the Gurkhas, you know, one of the sort of crack regiment Nepalese who've supported the British for so long, they're much better on mountainous terrain than flat terrain because of their feet. Is that because their feet had adapted, like the St Kildan's feet had adapted, to scampering up cracks? Well, that's what I've read, is that they had almost 
flat feet is a, a standard among people who've lived in mountains like they have forever. And I'd love the disembodied voice to look into that, but that's something I've always taken to be true, that they were much better in mountainous terrain. Can I ask a question yes. about, so you have the small population and you're, they're losing people for migration, but there are mass of people coming in for marriages and for sustaining a population. Otherwise, you're going to be incredibly inbred, aren't you? Well, the factors, of course, because they wanted it to remain economically productive. I mean, the Fulmar, for example, they extracted oil from it. It's the only place I think of which was lit by oil of seabirds. <laughs> And of course, the wool from the Soe sheep was a very fine kind of wool. And then gradually when tourists started coming, well, that created a sort of economy. When people dived to the then um, the McLeod of McLeod would send crofters from another part of his estate on the mainland or another island across to St Kilda. But do you know what St Kilda's golden age was? It was the First World War. Now, migration, bad for St Kilda. War, you'd think, bad for everybody, but not for St. Kilda. And the reason was it was useful as a sort of outpost for people who were interested in plotting the naval manoeuvres of the German Imperial Navy. So they posted soldiers and sailors, military, on St. Kilda, and they built barracks for them. And for the first time ever, introduced a sort of cash economy to St. Kilda. So you could go and work if you were a St. Kilda in the barracks and take care of these troops. And they brought with them all the opportunities that young men looking through in the world for adventure brought with them. So all of a sudden things were much perkier, much livelier on St Kilda. And then, of course, the war ended and they were all taken away again. And that was really what did for St Kilda. So the population decreased and decreased and decreased. Any young person with any wit or opportunity about them would get out of there. The weather conditions were so foul. There's a wife of one of the ministers there who wrote a diary in which she said that an Atlantic storm blew without cessation for, I think, for two weeks and deafened the entire population (laughs) because it was just such a screaming, howling, banshee-like storm. Apart from humans, what other predators do the birds have? Are there rats there or what else was after the eggs on the cliffs? Well, I think the populations of seabirds then and now were so robust. I mean, now, of course, it's avian flu, of course. If you go, for example, to Bass Rock, another of the great gannetries off the coast of Scotland, east coast of Scotland, um, northern England, you will find that the population there has been very, very badly affected by avian flu. But no, it was a great place. If you were a gannet or a puffin or a fulmar, Unless, of course, a cracksman came scampering after you and nicked your young and yeah. sucked your eggs and all the rest of it, or squeezed the oil out of you to light <laughs> yes. your lamps. So there are these poor St. Kilda's. The population dwindled and dwindled and dwindled and dwindled. Tourism, there's an interesting story about tourists going over who are fascinated by it. I mean, it is absolutely beautiful and so striking when you see I totally get why people would go you can go now they would go over and they would buy lovely there's a lovely story about somebody buying this beautiful tartan square made by Lady St Kilda and then when she got back realised it had been made in Glasgow and had been exported <laughs> to St Kilda and then re-exported back to Glasgow for some reason. but in the end the population reached a point in 1930 when it was simply no longer viable and so they got together they had an interesting early parliament there was a sort of group that met every morning to discuss grazing rights actually and over the years that evolved into a sort of parliament because they were self-governing you imagine a long way from anywhere mm. once a year a minister before they got their own minister would come in for marriages and baptism and so on but they pretty much looked after themselves so the committee got together with the minister and the nurse and they wrote to the secretary of state for scotland and said we don't think we can survive another winter so please could you evacuate 
this island. So happened that the Under Secretary of State for Scotland, a man called Tom Johnson, who was an extraordinary person, but he had a real feel and affinity for the St Kildans. And so it came to pass that in the summer of 1930, two ships were dispatched from Glasgow. One of them loaded the livestock on and all the journalists who'd been hanging around trying to get the story, they managed to flush them out. And then the St Kildans got one last day together, the whole community, just on their own, with their minister. They said prayers in church. They cut peat and left it at every hearth. They opened their family Bibles and left it on the table in their cottages. And they got on a ship called the Harebell and they sailed away, never to return. They oh, went to Oban. Yes. This enterprising undersecretary of state had arranged for them to have jobs in forestry. And they kind of melted into the general population. Did they stick together? Did they stick together in, as a As far community? as possible, yes. Mm. So around Morven, for example, they wanted Gaelic-speaking parts of Scotland that stuck there. A few went up north, but they did stick together. Quite a few sort of went to Glasgow and reinvented them. So the last native St Kildan to die died in 2016, actually. Mm, okay. Fully adapted to life in the city. But imagine that, that last day. Very dramatic, mm. thinking of that, yeah. And thinking of leaving your home. Oh. And there was a division because there were only young people and old people then. All the people of working age had gone, which is one of the reasons why it wasn't viable. Yes. The young people desperate to get off, I suppose, and seek adventure. The old people perhaps looked back, last of St Kilda, and yes. saw it receding into the distance. And ever since then, it's been... There's no permanent population. Mm. The army, the military have had a base there. It's now hugely significant as a site for seabirds. So that's your St Kilda. But my favourite fact is, mm -hmm. who was St Kilda? I was mm. waiting for that. <laughs> there was no St Kilda. Oh, my goodness. It was really? a mistake. It was a corrupt... Now, because who was it who would have visited St Kilda Cat? Well, presumably the Vikings. The Vikings came. Yes. The Vikings left behind them their linguistic footprint. And St Kilda was a corruption of two words, one of them Gaelic, one of them Norse, that they put together and that sounded like St Kilda. So they evolved the name St Kilda. In fact, there are St Kildas in other parts of the world now commemorating the island of St Kilda, but there was no actual... <gasps> St Kilda. So if you were That's looking for a fake saint, who knows? <laughs> St Kilda is the one for you. We have a fact from our disembodied voice, I think. Yes, just a couple of things from me. So Richard, you mentioned that the St Kildans ate around 36 eggs a day and 18 fowl. And then Charles, you mentioned earlier about indigenous mountain communities having adaptations. What I can tell you is that in order to combat high altitudes, the Andeans adapted to the thin air by carrying more oxygen in each red blood cell and Tibetans take more breaths per minute compared to people who live at sea level. So that was what I found on that in this instance. Mm. Thank you. Very good. Well, thank you for that, Richard. Yes. Well, I think we should go I'm and I'm going to be dreaming tonight about yeah. that last day when they left their family Bibles. And yes. So sad, so poignant. But there's very few places where you know it's the last day. Though. That's true. But do you know what? They weren't that sad. Imagine what a winter would have been like on yeah. Chicago. They just thought we can't face another one. No. So I think a lot of them were thinking, woo. Yeah. yeah. And the decision was taken away from them. So it's not like they're abandoning it. It's a yeah. bigger thing, isn't it? So it's yeah. not like they've given up. It's uh, quite like It's a, a tactical retreat. Yes. Excellent. Well, I think that leaves us going on to my topic uh -huh. this time. I'm trying to see if I can find a link to yours. <laughs> you mentioned a MacLeod. 
Good yes. news, I've got my cloud as well. Hey. <laughs> so I'm going to be talking about Matahari, the legendary femme fatale, the most notorious female spy, I suppose. And it's got the most incredible story behind her. And her full name, her real name was Margareta Zella MacLeod. She was married to a Scot, a Scottish officer oh. who had the surname MacLeod. So that's her original name. So there we go. That's, See, that's already link. my favourite fact and you haven't even begun. <laughs> well, there we go. <laughs> Wasn't a happy marriage show, unfortunately. But she's so interesting. I mean, she's one of these um, incredible characters. She's had over, I think, 250 books written about her. And she's still presented as this mystery, this legend that we don't know a lot about. And to an extent, that's true. And if you go online and research it, it's really hard to sort of pick apart what's actually true and what's not. But what's quite fun is that really that's sort of what she wanted, I think. That's what she was presenting. She was she wanted to be this mystery because she was obviously not called Matahari at all. So she was started life well as a Dutch girl, the daughter of a a man who had a very successful hat business or hat making business. So she grew up being actually with quite a lot of money and quite a lot of wealth. She was quite happy until her father lost all the money quite soon after the father died and it all sort of went a bit downhill. And so she started out with this point and then she suddenly she was found herself having been spoiled rotten by her dad, I think, and then suddenly having nothing and no parents. And she ended up getting married to this Scots, um, being sent to the Dutch East Indies, actually, to Java. And that's kind of where it starts to go wrong for her. So she had this sort of relatively good starting point, went off, got married. Turns out her husband was pretty horrible. He was an alcoholic and a womanizer and treated very badly. So this it was a guy in Java as well. Yes, this was in Java. So that's where they were, they were living. They had two children, a boy and a girl, and the boy died. And again, the story is a little bit unclear. Seems that they both were born with syphilis, that they got from the father and actually that's possibly what killed the son so eventually they go back to Europe and uh, divorce because she was very very unhappy but he wouldn't give her any money and she had nothing to do so she was really quite young she was only 18 when she got married and there was nothing for her so when you're this is the beginning really of the 20th century and as a divorced woman with children husband wouldn't support her there was nothing she could do she couldn't get a job so eventually she had to leave her daughter with her abusive ex-husband she had no other choice and decided to go to Paris to essentially just seek money and, and success and she starts out as a painter's model because that's pretty much the only way she could earn money and she was very successful at that and eventually somebody suggested she go into exotic dancing obviously this is a great time for Paris and the sort of arts and performance world and she invents this new personality this Matahari which means eye of the dawn in Malay and she invents this entire personality so there's all sorts of things she said she was that she was an eastern princess she said she had this eastern origins and this was a time when orientalism was huge as well so everybody loved of this idea of exoticism. And so she starts, she invents this new sort of dance. She has veils that she sort of starts with and then throws away wearing nothing but these metal breastplates at the end of it. She, she claims that this is a, an actually a sort of Eastern temple dance. So people are watching it thinking it's not just a striptease, it's actually a sort of oriental cultural thing. Question, Kat, was she a woman just trying to make a living? Or do you think she actually kind of wanted to do this? This was sort of something she invested in? Clearly it's a bit of both. So she starts out needing to get money. Yeah. But it seems like she's absolutely enjoying this. She becomes the most 
famous woman around in Paris at the time. So she's an immediate success. Everybody absolutely loves her. She has lovers everywhere. So she has all these very powerful, very influential men that essentially pays for her. So she gets to live a life of luxury. She's admired. She travels everywhere. And she has this huge success. So it's clearly, this isn't a woman who's just suffering. She's enjoying this sort of storytelling as a part of it as well. Oh, yeah. So I was going to say, she has the most incredible lovers, including apparently the Crown Prince of Germany, the Dutch Prime Minister. Puccini apparently was one of her lovers as well. So she's, I think she's enjoying life. A select group, really. (laughs) Yeah, really. Um, But she then (laughs) finds herself in Berlin at the beginning of the First World War, which is not a great place to be for her as a foreigner. So she. What nationality was she? So she was a Dutch citizen still. And uh, the Dutch were neutral in the war, which is also quite important in this story. So she wasn't really on anyone's side. And she'd been sleeping with men from any country and all. She was very into offices, apparently, as well. So that, that obviously also a led her to. Right? Yes, she says that she really loves uniforms. Um, so she was, I believe, she was arrested at the time. She had all her stuff, all her jewelry, all her clothes taken away from her as a foreign national. And um, at this point, apparently, she seems to be approached and asked to spy for the Germans. So she got offered 20,000 francs for uh, information about the French. And she says, yes, of course. Apparently, she never did. But then this is part of where the story is sort of unclear. Others say that she got trained quite carefully by another German spy. But essentially, over the next couple of years, she can't quite continue this, but she still has all her relationships. She's clearly spying. She falls in love at some point with a Russian pilot as well. And this is also part of her downfall. It's quite niche, isn't it, a Russian (laughs) pilot? Speak for yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Again, it's a uniform for her. Um, He was considerably younger than her as well. She, at this point, is in her late 30s. That's something I don't understand, Kat. Yeah. Why were the Germans bothered about her if she was a Dutch national and Dutch that was meant neutral. Yes, but she has access to uh, all these very, very important people. Lots of pillow talk. Yes, lots and of pillow talk. it's wartime, right? So the rules are a little... It's wartime, yeah. so they're all sort of trying to get information. She sort of also can travel more because I think because she's Dutch, I think there were rules about the fact that she could travel. But, you know, it was really the fact that she had the most ludicrous address book clearly <laughs> and access to all these people so you know she's perfect really an asset yeah she's say. an asset and the spying so I mean you talked about secret services and things I mean at this point the whole sort of spy business is really quite undeveloped really it's not really a it's not very, very formal. formal or sophisticated they don't really know what they're doing but she seemed to be someone who could get around quite literally and so at one point, she then wants to visit this Russian lover of hers who's injured. So he was in Europe. She had to go and try and visit him. She goes via Britain and the Brits get suspicious as well. So there's files in the MI5 who was sort of interrogating, seeing what she was really doing. But at one point, the French counterintelligence bureau and one of the officers there essentially also recruits her. And she apparently fails to mention that she's already off taken money off the Germans, <laughs> which is not really great. Um, Complicated life. Well, <laughs> secrets. But um, her downfall comes, I think, in part because she's, she's actually really, really not a good agent at all. She's appalling. So she sends letters to this French officer who sort of allegedly employed her just in normal posts and she's giving all the information she calls his office to, to sort of tell him things and um you can't and be good at everything can <laughs> well, you no, exactly this wasn't really her main <laughs> skill how did a courtesan would have developed the 
skills of discretion, but perhaps You'd not. You'd think so, but maybe that wasn't really her strong side. <laughs> or maybe it was just, she went a bit crazy, I don't know. Yeah. But I think discretion, that's an interesting thing. She's not a conventional courtesan, because I think a conventional courtesan was discreet, but she was she was a sort of celebrity. A marketing she herself. Was celebrity. Yes. She so was... you would need to know, wouldn't you, for her to kind of boost her yeah. market value, that she was available. That's true. Somebody described her as a sort of influencer. <laughs> so that if this was today, she would yes. be having a huge Instagram account and, and all that, <laughs> getting money. A Kardashian, yes, you yes. can compare to that. So it's all a bit sort of confusing what happens. But eventually, she does get arrested by the French. A few people actually stitch her up who really don't like her. So in the spring of 1917, she's arrested. And she is sent to prison for six months, which is actually really awful for her. Uh, she's not allowed a bath. She's not allowed to change her clothes. There's all these letters essentially just describing her mistreatment. And obviously, she's used to this high life. She's used to having everything mm. and being admired by everyone. And then after that six months, she goes to trial and she is convicted of espionage and essentially betraying uh, France. Question. Yes. <laughs> How can you betray France if you're not French? I know these are the fortunes of war, but legally it sounds a bit doubtful. How can you be guilty of treason against a country to which you do not belong? I guess she was working for them. So she was working for the French intelligence. That led to so you've got that's... an HR problem, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But the whole Breach thing is really difficult. So she was actually accused of causing the death, of, I think it's 50,000 oh. soldiers, uh -huh. that the information that she obtained caused all those death, all those lives. But the whole thing was appalling that, that she wasn't allowed a proper defence. And actually, apparently, the official documents from this were only released, I think, in 2017. And it's really clear that she was essentially a bit of a scapegoat. There was a lot of people, a lot of powerful men who really hated her as well. And at the time, she, I mean, she sort of represented everything that the French really didn't want at the time. You know, this was a bad time during the war. And to have this woman who had, uh, she was a divorcee, she had abandoned her child, she'd essentially a sex worker. She had also perhaps held up a mirror to them and they saw all the reflection they didn't want to see, right? They hated her. Yeah. Mm. So all, all of these things led to her downfall. So she was then sentenced to death by execution. So on the 15th of October 1917, she was taken from her cell in the prison, taken out to be executed. And there's an incredible number of legends and stories about her actual death and lots of, lots of conspiracy theories saying that she didn't actually die. But she, it did seem quite clear that she, she refused to wear a blindfold. Oh, she refused to be sort of tied up. There's this one story that claims that she managed to escape because she, she sort of suddenly threw off her clothes and, and everyone was so shocked and sort of, you know, amazed <laughs> at seeing her naked, dazzled <laughs> by her naked body. That, uh, but they, they, they sort of shot the wrong direction and she could escape. <laughs> uh, none of this seemed to be true. But it was really quite a tragic story. I mean, she was this complete sensation. So she died at the age of, of 41, having had really quite a long time of being the ultimate celebrity. And these films, I mean, the first film, I think, came out only a couple of years after her death. So she was very quickly a legend. But there's still now a Dutch organisation wanting her her reputation to be sort of looked at again for that trial, which was clearly not very fair. I don't want to sound like I'm lapsing into sloganeering. But it's a very much a feature of patriarchy, isn't it, that a woman agent of that kind, I exercising Absolutely. agency, would be something that was intolerable. Yeah, I think you're right, Richard. You hit on it. It's easier to get rid of someone like that than to tolerate them, isn't yeah. it? And she's a scapegoat as well. She's yes. a scapegoat of so many things, and you know, there would have been so many 
male agents and spies doing exactly the same things really that she was doing. And well, sexual actually, jealousy, ones who had been with her and those precisely. who couldn't be with her, all she of that. She was no better than she should be. And, and yeah. she was so successful and she, you know, she had all this wealth. She clearly managed to amass an awful lot of money. She had kids, right? Yeah, so she had, so one boy died and then a daughter. Um, mm. What happened to the daughter? Do we know anything about yeah. what became the descendants of her? Don't actually know. Maybe I disembodied voice can try to, to find out. Um, what about her? What became of her remains? So now this is going to lead me to my favourite fact, mm-hmm. actually, which is a sort of slightly gruesome one. So quite tragically, really, she had been celebrated for her body, really, for pretty much all her adult life. But when she died, nobody wanted the body, nobody wanted to bury it. So there's nobody there. So it was given to science, to medical research, to be dissected. But I believe it was about 2000, it was discovered that her head... So when she was dissected, her head was separated and kept and preserved, which was something that they used to do back then. It's disappeared. So nobody knows where it is. And it's believed to have been stolen by a collector and still not been discovered. what? <laughs> Very odd. Very gruesome. Yes. Gruesome collector. relics. Yeah. Well, I mean, I say gruesome relics. Church is full of them. Isn't it? Well, yeah, absolutely. What a story, Cat. What mm. an amazing person. I love the noble death. If I'm ever let out to be faced with firing squad, I hope I have the song for her to... There's a story that she asked for a cigarette, didn't she? And she smoked a fag while they shot her. At that point, so she's been in prison for six months. She must have known there was no other chance, there was no other hope for her. She could never get back to this career that she'd had. I think maybe at that point you just accept it and you just think, well... I don't okay. know if you ever give up, though, do you? I mean, from executions I've read about, it's very rare that the person really thinks it's going to happen. <laughs> do you know what I mean? You sort yeah. of think Part something's going to happen. Well, there's stories in there about Thomas Cromwell waiting for the pardon from the king. Yes. Or... Hamilton, the mistress of Peter the Great, thinking that uh, she would be spared on the block. Maybe just a little bit of you just hang Tiny bit, because you can't contemplate the awfulness of it or the finality. Do you know, some of the young bucks in the terror in the French Revolution used to dance a little jig on the scaffold. Before Was that they... to show they weren't scared yeah, or something? get you in your stupid revolution. <laughs> oh, I care. <laughs> I do think something perhaps with Marta Hari as well at 41, perhaps she thought that her powers were fading. Oh, yeah. And that it might be... A noble death would be a lovely way to finish. Yes, and she was very much, I think, about this legend and the story. So I think you can imagine she might have been the sort of person who doesn't really see herself as a little old lady well, <laughs> sitting quietly in the corner. You know, this was her. So now she'd go, yeah. gone out, you know, on a not on a high really, but almost. There was a, a very famous royalist in the civil wars of the Three Kingdoms, as I say, in the 1640s and 50s, the Duke of Montrose. And he was very aware that he was he was going to be hanged. It was a an unpleasant end that was elected for him by his Scottish enemies because they didn't want him to have the dignity of an axe. And he spent an enormous amount of time doing his hair, wore a beautiful new suit. He wanted to make a, a visual statement on his final day. A splendid end. Yeah, and when they, they were taunting him for doing his hair, and they said, you know, by the end of today, that'll be on the pike somewhere. And he said, well, f- right now it's mine. Yes. Um, the silk and rope thing, Charles, as yes. a peer, should you be convicted of a capital <laughs> crime for which death by hanging was prescribed, would you get a silk and rope? Oh, I don't know. I've obviously heard the expression. I don't know anything about it. Was that part of the deal? I don't know. There was a thing, wasn't it, that you could be hanged by a silk and rope? Or is that just Never kind of heard this. legend? I've heard of being hung by a silk and rope, but I, I didn't know what it was. Yeah. Something I hope I'll never well, find out. <laughs> well, poor old disembodied voice. My fingers go smoking yeah. from all the kind of typing she's got to do to find out all these facts. Um, what I can tell you is that 
There's some disagreement around the death of Matahari's daughter. She was known as Non, but it's believed that she died of a cerebral hemorrhage, thought to be when she was in her 20s and just before she was about to leave to become a school teacher in what was then the Dutch East Indies. The only other thing I'll add about Matahari is that there is still a rumour that seems to circulate quite often that she blew a kiss before she was executed, but that's been found to not be true. I think you'd do that, Richard. In your imaginary firing squad moment, I think you might blow a kiss at the truth. (laughs) Well, you know me and I do like our brave boys. (laughs) I like Marshall Nade, not the face. I want a noble end. <laughs> I want a yes. noble end. Might as well be something people remember. A noble, anyway. painless end would be well, nice, yeah. But yeah, that'd be the best. It's sort of at least it's talked about. Yeah. On that note, <laughs> let's leave it. Well, actually, that's you? a very interesting lead into mine. Is which it? I'm doing the Bloomsbury group or the Bloomsbury set who were looking for nobility, but of the spirit and of the mind. They were a group that existed Really, it's not an entirely set pair of dates, but between about 1905 and 1930. And they were rebelling. They were artists, philosophers and writers who were rebelling against the strict disciplines that their parents had tried to put upon them in terms of morality and politeness, behavior, all those sort of things. This group really saw all of that as absurd. And they were looking for a way of passing on a more enlightened way of seeing life, I think. There were various very famous members, but a lot of them weren't famous. But the most famous, I think, is E.M. Forster. And he's one of the very few of them who was already very successful in the early days of Bloomsbury. A lot of these were aspirational people who joined, generally from a part of London that was incredibly well-kempt squares in in Bloomsbury, uh, Russell Square, Bloomsbury Square, very lovely part of London, touched by high learning because you've got the British Museum right there. But Ian Forster was the only one who had already had commercial success. He only wrote five novels during his lifetime that were published during his lifetime. Uh, He'd already written Where Angels Fear to Tread and The Longest Journey in 1907 and The Room with a View and Howard's End all really had marked him out as a great man. But he was typical of the sort of person who joined this group. There was a lot of homosexuality. He was gay and sort of in the set was known to be. It wasn't at all a problem. Actually, a slight rabbit hole. I was quite interested in Ian Forster because he is one of my favourite writers anyway. He was actually christened Henry, but he was accidentally baptised by an absent-minded vicar, (laughs) if such a thing exists, as Edward Morgan Foster. So he took the name. They thought that was a message from above. E.M. Forster sounds... H.M. Forster. H.M. Forster sounds like a prison, doesn't it? Exactly. (laughs) Maybe that would have been it. Um, He was a conscientious objector in World War I, which quite a few of the men of this set were. I've mentioned the famous ones. I suppose the most famous female member would definitely be Virginia Woolf. Mm. She was bisexual. She was the female lover of Vita Sackville-West, the author and garden designer poet. And there was a sort of fluidity to the sexuality of this group that Virginia Woolf, the great novelist, you know, that she was really symbolic of. She married a man called Leonard Woolf, who founded uh, the Hogarth Press publishing firm, 
and laid out the blueprint for the League of Nations and advised the Labour Party on foreign policy. So <laughs> quite a sort of bizarre mix. And then you had another one of the more prominent members was Lytton Strachey, who was the author of Eminent Victorians, an incredibly successful biography of four very prominent people in Queen Victoria's reign. And he introduced a sort of more interesting way of writing about biography rather than just laying out facts. You know, there was a bit of humour involved and a bit of prodding at the the more absurd part of people's lives while bringing them to life. Equally, you know, Virginia Woolf is seen as a, a sort of stream of consciousness using that as a narrative device. So they were innovative in their particular fields. Although I would have to say, apart from E.M. Forster and Virginia Woolf, a lot of them weren't quite of the first class in their particular fields. So we have Vanessa Bell, who was the sister of Virginia Woolf. She was a perfectly able artistic talent, you know, and she was married to Clive Bell in 1907. They had two sons. But the marriage unwound very quickly and and they decided to have an open marriage. Clive drifted back to a, a previous love. And Vanessa had a relationship with another member of the Bloomsday set, who's a name, but not a big name, Roger Fry. And then she fell in love with Duncan Grant, again, another person of interest, but not outstanding. Yeah. I quite like the second rank here. I mean, Ian Forster, <laughs> reputation unassailable, I yes. thought. Virginia Woolf, reputation unassailable, I thought. But there's something kind of like statues about them, aren't they? They belong firmly, securely to And history. they were very big in their day as the, well. They just haven't survived quite as well a hundred years on. It's the second rank that fascinate me, the personalities mm. there, the kind of satellites round that were in orbit around them, I guess. That, That's a very interesting thing, yes. Well, what's interesting to me is with Vanessa, Virginia Woolf's sister, she ends up living with Duncan Grant for the rest of her life, even though she's by this stage primarily lesbian, and he is very devoutly homosexual. Hugely homosexual. They live very happily together and even manage at some point to have a daughter. Even if they're not at the first rank of talent, someone like Duncan, he had incredible charm and charisma. He's a genius as an artist in his own way, honest, sincere, and had a simplicity of character, which I think is what this bohemian set, the Bloomsbury group, were trying to aspire towards. Can I tell you something? Mm. The other week I was having tea with my friend Simon, who lives in the little town of Deal, near Dover. Yes. And Simon was the last amanuensis of Duncan Grant and oh looked after him in age. And there's a lovely portrait of him as a young man with long hair, I think about 1975, painted by Duncan Grant. So it wasn't that long ago. And the sort of afterburn of the Bloomsbury set lasted quite a long time. That is extraordinary. And I, what I love about these people is them rebelling against what was set out as expected by their parents and going completely the other way. So Duncan Grant ends up as a very successful artist, but his family were Scottish soldiers, and it was expected that he join the army and and just carry on the tradition. And he spent his early childhood in India and Burma as an army brat. But he just said, no, I can't do that, and ended up enjoying his art classes. He was encouraged by his art teacher and decided to go a different route. Do you know about his monkey pictures? No. There's a cache of about 400 extraordinary graphic homoerotic pictures painted by Duncan Grant that were given to him by a lover, and then that lover passed it to his lover, and then he passed it to another lover. And they've actually just been in an exhibition at Charleston, which is near me in East Sussex. And I went to see it, and they are, well, full of life, shall we say. (laughs) 
Well, that's wonderful. Well, part of his love life was with, I suppose, another major name from this set, which is John Maynard Keynes the financial expert and theorist, he recommended that government should get involved in fiscal policy to sort of head off the inevitability of economic cycles. So you do have really interesting people coming into this set. And also, the fact that when they got into a position of power, they helped each other. Mm. I mentioned earlier, a lot of the men from this group really were not in tune with the First World War and any part of its philosophy or what it was about. And so John Maynard Keynes could help get some of his Bloomsbury mates out of serving and becoming conscientious objectors. So there is a feeling that they were a cohesive group. They used to meet on Thursday or Friday nights in each other's houses. They liked to do that because they didn't want a large audience. They wanted to be able to be impolite to each other and say what they really felt. Do you think also that they had the strength of being people of standing wealth and prestige so they could, I mean, imagine they're sort of people who would drive lots of people mad. They are the kind of archetypal liberal elites so often derided today, but they kind of got away with it, didn't they? And also in a penal era for homosexuality, I mean, they were shagging like rabbits, weren't they? Or were they? They were. And it got very complicated because a lot of them were bisexual and they were <laughs> there was a lot going on in terms of shifting sounds in their relationships. But also, this is a time where there were groups which were known for extreme sexuality. I mean, Evelyn Moore at this same period in the early 20s was part of a club in Oxford called the Hypocrites Club. And they rebelled again against their parents' so-called standards. And there were rampant homosexuals in there. There's Anthony Pohl, the novelist, Tom Dryberg, the future Labour counter-minister. There were, there were a lot of people who were very able, very openly gay, as we would see it. And it was okay because it was seen as a, a normal part of undergraduate life to be homosexual, you would grow out of that phase. And then, of course, the notorious cases like Guy Burgess, I suppose, who, with the sort of red scare of the 1950s and then Hugh Cartlip's campaign in the Daily Mirror to root out the homosexual menace, the mood changed, didn't it? But up until mm -hmm. the 1930s, perhaps it was a kind of safer world if you enjoyed the benefits of being part of an elite. Well, there was that. And also in Oxford, there was a sort of snobbery. It was assumed to be better to have homosexual affairs with people from your background rather than resorting to ladies of dubious repute in the town. So there's a coterie of dons, Oxford dons, who encouraged it and would introduce young men to each <laughs> other. Maybe another man, but it's a Marquis, for goodness sake. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask a question? You were just saying that they would meet and have this group. Were they recognised as a sort of group externally at the time, or is this something that's sort of been defined later on? Well, that's a good question, Kat. So we can date them back to about 1905, but it's only from 1912 that they were referred to mm. as the Bloomsbury Group or SAT. So by that stage, people from outside were recognising them as a gang, I think. Yeah. And Rich is quite right, a very privileged gang who made people quite angry because it was all right for them to have these sort of highfalutin ideas because they didn't have to worry about where the next penny came from. Um, and they but, could experiment with life because they mm. could live as they wanted to. Have you been to Charleston? I have. You? I know where Charleston is, yes. Near where I live yes. in Sussex. And you go there and there's just, the interesting room is the kitchen, actually. And you think, who actually picked up their knickers? Who actually yes. washed the bed sheets? Who actually dealt with the kind of creaking floorboards late at night as people pitter-pattered from room to room? 
Yeah. Must have been a bit of a bore for them. <laughs> yes, I think so. <laughs> or not. Maybe they like the gossip. But and also, I, I was reading about when they took over a house because they all had these wonderful creative urges. But it was a nightmare because everyone would be painting every square inch with yeah. what they thought was the best colour in the best fashion. So you'd end up with sort of competing. The cupboards in the kitchen would be painted in various competing ways on various weeks. Well, I mean, I wouldn't particularly mind if Duncan Grant had decorated my bedroom, but if John Maynard Keynes had, <laughs> yes. different. can I say another thing which I noticed yes. about Charles? I'm still going about this, but I'm a bit obsessed with it at the moment. They all slept in single beds. Oh, you right. go into the bedrooms and it's all single beds. So I think they slept alone, hmm. but they kind of conjugated in one way or another. I don't know, perhaps oh, on sofas that makes, or things, yeah. but they slept in single beds. That's interesting. Your favourite fact? So I do have a favourite fact. And it's very rare that I come to a favourite fact that really has a summation of, of a piece. But Dorothy Parker sums up the Bloomsbury group in a far better way than I can. She says, they lived in squares, painted in circles, and loved in triangles. Oh, and it's funny. perfect, isn't it? Isn't I mean, I can't, you know, that's just, <laughs> when good. I read that, it just purred off the page. Really. They lived in squares, painted in circles, and loved in triangles. <laughs> <laughs> that's very good. So... Final moment of truth, which is our disembodied voice making She's the... She's been working hard today. Yeah, undemocratic decision of who's the winner. It was quite a difficult one today, I thought. I thought all three of you painted quite vivid pictures of quite different subjects. But I think the person who just pipped everyone else to the post would be Cat with Matahari. Oh, well done, Cat. Well done, Cat. Thank you. It was cracking, actually. It was such an interesting it's tale. such a good story. Beautifully put. Matahari. Eye of the dawn. Matahari. Matahari. She saw a few dawns in her time. But she did. <laughs> yes, she from quite sides. a lot of things. <laughs> Definitely. So there we go. Well, I think that leaves us with just telling everyone the topics we've got laid out for us to revise uh -huh. next week. So I am going to be looking at calendars. Excellent. That's a very good one. And Charles, you've got the Statue of Liberty and Ellis Islands. And uh -huh. I think especially people who've gone through them. Mm -hmm. And then Richard, Kippers. Kippers. <laughs> From St Kilda to Kippers. Yes. Well, you could land a few Kippers in yes. St Kilda. Good well, not you would land a Kipper, but you could make a Kipper. Yeah. Very good. I like it. So that's it for this week for us. So... Thank you to everyone out there for listening. Please do subscribe and leave us a review. We absolutely love reading reviews. I know we all keep looking at them and they're <laughs> so lovely to hear the feedback. And it helps other people find us as well when they're looking for new podcasts. If you want to send us an email, feel free to do so, especially if you'd like to suggest a topic. We always love having new suggestions for what to talk about. That's rabbitholedetectives at gmail.com. You can find us in the Daily Telegraph every Wednesday in our Rabbit Hole Detectives column discussing our favourite facts from the show. So, in the words from Lewis Carroll's Alice, why, there's hardly enough of me left to make one respectable person. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye. Bye.